man was uh, stranded on a deserted island for years in the Pacific until one day a boat came sailing within view and the man frantically waved and the, the captain of the boat saw him and came to the island and greeted the stranded man. And he asked the castaway, he said, what are those three huts over there that you've built? And the rescued man replied, well, the, the, first, house, the, the first hut is my house. He said, okay, what, what's the second hunt for? He said, oh, that's my church. That's, that's where I go uh, to worship. Okay. And looked at the third hut and he said, well, what's that hut for? He said, oh, he said, that's, that's where I used to go to church. Funny but true, isn't it? <laughs> we humans are pretty good at conflict and putting up walls to keep people out, sometimes even ourselves. Maybe not physical walls, but we find ways of doing it. Well, we're in week four of our uh, series to the book of Ephesians. In the first three chapters, the Apostle Paul has been spelling out the uh, theological um, aspects of God's purpose in creating the church. And we discovered it was to, uh, for him to bless us with spiritual blessings by bringing us together into his family uh, by his grace. And we saw this beautiful portrait of a loving, compassionate God who longs to be in a, in a right relationship uh, with us. But beginning in chapter 4, Paul changes from theology and more to a, a practical application. And there are two subjects that he really drills down upon in this chapter, and that's unity and maturity in the church. And he focuses on unity in diversity, that is using our individual uh, spiritual gifts to accomplish one overarching purpose of building uh, Christ's church into one mature, unified body of believers. And to do that, he gives us instructions on how to live in such a way that, that brings people together rather than driving us apart. I'm reading the first three verses. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you uh, to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. And make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Uh, the first thing that he does is to remind us that he's in jail. And I think he does that to give some weight uh, to what he's about to say. He wants his readers to, to know that there's a cost, that there is some risk to living the Christian life in a non-Christian world. And then he urges them to live a life that is worthy of that calling as Christians. Now, sometimes we think that a calling is just for some spiritual elite. One day you're walking down the street, you're minding your own business, God hits you with a lightning bolt, and boom, you're called. 
But Paul reminds us otherwise. He reminds us that the moment you signed up, the moment you said yes to God, the moment the waters of, of baptism covered you, you were saying, I am willing to serve you for the rest of my life. Not everybody's a pastor, not everybody's an apostle, not everybody's an evangelist or, or a teacher, but everyone is called. You see, too often we think the institutional church is the way to get things done. We hire professional staff to do the ministry uh, while everybody else sits and, and watches the performance. But is that how God designed the church to work? I don't think so. In the first hundred years or so, in fact, there was, there was no professional clergy. Everyone had the sense that they were called to help spread this Jesus movement. By the second century, we began to see some distinction between the, the clergy and the laity. And by the fourth century, under Emperor Constantine, the church had been legalized and institutionalized with laws and powers and, and special privileges. Big mistake. God's design was for the priesthood of all believers. And Peter reminds us of that in, in chapter 2. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a, a holy nation, God's, listen, God's special possession. All of us are called, all of us are gifted, all of us have a role to play in the kingdom of God. And because of that, Paul wants us to live like it. He wants us to be different than everybody else. And one of those characteristics that should define those that are called is this desire to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So what Paul is saying is that God is in the uniting business. God's passion is reconciliation. Christ's redemptive work is wall-destroying. The burning heart of God is for peace. In the very first week of our series in Ephesians, we learned that God has a plan. That plan is this, he says, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. God's plan for creation is unity. God's plan for creation is peace. No book of the Bible speaks more of this than Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. We have such well-known passages like, for example, chapter 9, where it says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of his government and Peace, there he says, there will be no end. Or Isaiah chapter 11 says, the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. That's God's vision for creation. Now, don't raise your hand, but um, wouldn't you agree that every single one of us has at least one person in our life that drives us crazy? Am I right? A friend, family member, neighbor, a pew person? We all have one. Those people don't particularly get along with. Sometimes jealousies, grudges, 
resentments, misunderstandings. You see, Paul knew this. He knew it was going to happen in the church. We can't get away from it. In fact, Paul had some pretty big arguments of his own. You read his letter to the Corinthians sometime if you want to see the apostle get angry. He's not some naive idealist thinking that we're all going to join hands in church in a big circle and sing kumbaya. He knows that's not going to happen. And so he takes time in chapter 4 to spell out how we get this unity in the midst of our diversity. And he says we do this through the virtues of humility and gentleness, patience. And he says, bearing with one another in love. He says we must make every effort to keep the gift of unity that Jesus gave his life to win for us. Now to do that, we have to focus on what we have in common, not on our differences. So what do we have in common? Well, to the Apostle Paul, he appeals to verse 5. He says, our one Lord, our one Lord. Methodist missionary and and author E. Stanley Jones said, talk about what you believe and eventually you're going to have disunity. But talk about who you believe in and then you'll have unity. See, if we keep talking long enough, we'll find something that we disagree upon. But if we keep our focus on Jesus, we'll find a unity that's there. Again, Paul says, make every effort, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, folks, he's not calling for uniformity, and there's a big difference. Uniformity means that, we all, that we're all alike, that we think alike, we believe alike, we worship alike, we, we pray alike, we have the same likes, we have the same dislikes. And there are churches like that, we're not one of them. Homogeneous churches where everybody believes like they're a lot easier to be the pastor of, but not as much fun. (laughs) So God doesn't want to banish diversity. God created this world with incredible diversity. So he must enjoy it too. But he does want us to keep that unity. See, in in the Corinthian church, The conflict doesn't seem to be disagreement over scripture or doctrine. It seems to be over what leader baptized them and and who they followed. Isn't it interesting that baptism is a symbol of our oneness in Christ, but the Christians in Corinth had turned it into this popularity contest. And some of them were following Paul, some were following Apollos, uh, some were following Peter, and others are following Christ. So the claim of fame to the first group was this. We are of Paul. We love Paul's preaching, and therefore therefore we're better than you are. Anyone knows that Paul is a great doctrinal preacher, and that's the only kind of preacher to have. But the second group retorted, well, we're of Apollos, and anyone with any sense at all will agree that Apollos is an eloquent preacher and can preach circles around Paul. The third group said, well, we're of Peter. And you can brag about your doctrine, and you can brag about eloquence all you want to, but there's nobody as down-to-earth and practical as our favorite preacher, Peter. And the fourth group, they looked down their long spiritual noses at the other three, and they said, well, we're of Christ. We don't look to any human preacher to lead us, and so we're better than you are. What a mess. It was all about personalities. And, you know, whenever we focus on personalities or preferences or interpretations or styles or methods, division will always happen. But when we focus on Christ, then we experience that unity that Paul is talking about. 
Years ago, I had a district superintendent who was on the other end of the theological spectrum from me. And for some reason, though, he, he put me on all these district committees and maybe the chairperson of the district strategy committee. Maybe he was following, uh, you know, that thing, keep your enemies close. I don't know. But anyhow, it seemed like I was on every committee in the district. And, and uh, we both had this passion and vision for helping uh, churches to reach people for Christ. And, and so we would work together to achieve those ends. And my colleagues would come up and say, how do you get along with him? I said, well, just fine, <laughs> because we really care about each other. I remember one annual conference, we sat beside each other the whole day, and we voted exactly the opposite on every single issue. <laughs> oh, we had lots of disagreements, but we loved each other, and there was unity. Not uniformity, but there was unity there. In verse 2, he says, put up with one another in love. Now, the kind of love that Paul is talking about here does, does not about compatibility or likability or even having warm feelings towards each other. It's a commitment to care for each other. It's a love that cements us together despite our odd quirks, our, our sandpaper personalities, our different cultures and backgrounds. It's a refusal to give up on each other even when we don't get along. The refusal to write somebody off because they have offended us for the hundredth time. It's a long-term commitment. I think for me, the key for dealing with difficult relationships is found in verse 29 through 32. Paul writes this, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. And get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger, brawling and slander along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ and God forgave you. So he wants us to put away the anger and the malice, and he wants us to practice forgiveness. See, I think forgiveness is the key here to unity. Forgiveness means that we're not going to allow the experiences of the past to dominate our future. See, the temptation is to, is to look at the offender and what he did to me, what she did to me. Maybe a better thing is for us simply to own our own feelings that we have around the situation. Forgiveness means to, to release, to let go of, to, to relinquish. Get rid of our sin, both ours and those who hurt us. doesn't mean that all of your anger is going to be gone. You're not a failure at forgiving just because you're still angry at the, at the painful wrong that was done to you. You can't erase what happened in the past, but you can begin to allow the pain from that to begin to heal. See, when you're wrong, that wrong becomes a part of your life, doesn't it? But when you forgive, you heal your hate for the person who did you wrong. You can't undo the facts. You can't undo the consequences. The, the reality of evil and the damage done to human beings is not somehow magically erased. But we can learn to live with, without the hate, the resentment, the bitterness, and the malice that Paul here speaks of. You see, once you begin rebuilding a relationship that's been torn, you'll begin to, to lose the passion of your anger. You'll begin to wish your, your ex 
well in their new marriage. You, you begin to want your rebellious child who has caused you so much misery to, to be happy. You can begin to pray for, for your boss who fired you. You'll begin to wish them well. And that will bring the peace that you're looking for. Broken relationships, unforgiven, my friends, will choke you. But forgiveness will push you towards a better future of joy-filled and life-giving relationships. It is worth the effort. It is worth the work. Well, in verses 4 through 6, Paul provides the doctrinal and theological grounds for why we need to keep this unity. He says this. He says there is one body, one spirit. This is you were called to one hope when you were called. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who's over all and through all and in all. Did you pick up a theme here? Oneness. Now, we're not told exactly how that oneness comes about. We learned that back in chapter 2 where that passage, that wonderful passage that narrates this grand drama of how Jesus, by uh, his blood and the cross, won unity not just in and for the church, but, but in and for all of creation. And, and this passage is, is the fullest, I think, biblical statement we have about how Jesus saving uh, death is the only true power of reconciliation for the whole universe, this, this broken cosmos. And so Ephesians 4 pushes us as a church to, to live out this precious uh, unity that God is creating for the entire world. In other words, uh, I think a failure of unity uh, among God's people is really a refusal to be a part of the mission that God is doing in the world. That's why unity is so important. When we read Ephesians 4, we see how God intends life to, to be within the church. This is not a community that never disagrees, some kind of utopian uh, colony of eternal yes-men. No, he says we're to speak the truth and we're to do it in love. Nor is the church supposed to be a community of conformity where we all look the same, sound the same, and, and think the same. Ephesians 4 is, gives us this picture of, of this rich diversity how God gives different gifts to the church, calling each person in the church to a different role. But this diversity is rooted in unity. We all love and we serve Jesus. And our common ground is one God, one faith, one baptism, one hope. And that's what transcends our differences. Well, in verses 11 through 13, Paul goes on to talk about the charismata, the gifts of grace. That's where we get the word charismatic. And he makes clear the purpose of it all. Listen. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? And he who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all of heavens in order to fill the whole universe. And so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to, now listen, to equip his people for works of service. So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. 
And so in these verses, Paul is reminding God's people that everybody has a spiritual gift. No exceptions. Everybody has one. In fact, Peter reminds us in his letter, he says, like good stewards of the grace of God, he says, serve one another with whatever gift you have received. So we've received a gift and we're to use it to serve others. It's not about me. It's about us. It's nothing you've earned. It's the gift of grace. God gives it to you. And it's spiritual in nature as opposed to a natural talent. It is supernatural. And then he tells us the purpose. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. And so the use of your spiritual gifts that God has given you is to be used to help the church to grow up, to maturity. They glorify God. It's not about me, but for serving others. And so the point that Paul is is making here is this, that he wants us to discover and to use our gifts to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and maturity. So what Paul is saying is that each and every one of us here today is essential in the body of Christ. You are needed. You have been gifted. And God wants you to discover and to use your gifts to help others to grow in their their faith, in the faith community, to grow in faith and unity. No pew sitters, Paul says. In the kingdom of God, no, no retirement. Well, we have two people who have discovered their gifts and they're using them at our fresh expressions. I'd like to have you watch this short video. I'm uh, Jonathan Coleman, one of the pastors at Anderson Hills. United Methodist Church. I want to welcome you to Faith and Friends on tap. We've known Jonathan for quite a while, and uh, he came to us one day and, and said he had this idea that he wanted to do religious services at a brewery. And, and Mary and I have always been fans of, of the craft brewing scene and really just kind of immediately got what he was trying to accomplish and, and loved the idea. And uh, he wanted us to help him with the music. So with Faith and Friends, uh, we have preachers who have amazing spiritual gifts of verbal communication. We have greeters who have amazing gifts of hospitality, prayer partners who have the gift of prayer. We feel that when we use our gift of music, uh, that as a team, then we can all deliver the fruit. I think using my spiritual gift of music I believe that we have served as conduit for people to have moments where they feel closer to God. We can we can really see the results sometimes of the the offerings of of our of our gifts, and uh, sometimes that response is in tears. We see that it's the Holy Spirit using us to flow through others as they respond to music, and and some people you can tell that just really touches them. You are holy. We are saved. Tom and Mary are great uh, examples of how when we use our gifts for the building up of the body of Christ that it results in in a lot of great fruit. Paul describes uh, finally what happens as we use our gifts for each other. He says, then we'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching. 
and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. My friends, in a world that is marked by division and conflict, we want the world to see a diverse church that is united in its loving service. So when a topsy-turvy world looks at a united and mature church, they'll see a portrait of Jesus. They'll see the whole measure of the fullness of Christ in us. See, God has set up things in such a way that if anyone asks, what is Jesus like? Who is Jesus? Is he loving? Is he good? Is he just? Is he kind? Is he generous? Does he comfort the oppressed? Does he challenge the oppressor? All they have to do is look at the church and get their answer. When the world looks at the church, the portrait of Jesus that they should see, the clearest is one of a Savior who reconciles. A Savior who makes enemies into friends. A Savior who reconciles people to God and people to people. Jesus' death is a reconciling death. Jesus is a unifier. A couple weeks at our Holy Spirit conference, I had two people come up after the service and, and ask for prayer. Both of these people were in their 80s. One turned 90. But their prayer was this. They wanted the Holy Spirit power to continue to be effective in serving the church and using their gifts for God. Both of them were anxious not to lose their passion. Both wanted to be faithful to Christ. I tell you, it got me so excited. And that's what I hope for all of us, a passion for serving together until our last day on this earth. In just a moment, we're going to celebrate Holy Communion, which is a great symbol of our unity in Christ. In our communion liturgy, when the bread is lifted up, the pastor says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. The bread and the cup symbolizes our oneness in Christ. Have you experienced, a, have you experienced some relationships that need to be healed? Have you struggled finding out just where you fit in to the body of Christ? Are there some, um, some relationships that, that need the touch of the Spirit? Some areas where we need unity. Let's just take a few moments as uh, we prepare to celebrate Holy Communion. Let God speak to us and show us maybe where those areas are that we might find the unity that Paul encourages to have his dream for a united church.